the year 2020. COVID turns us all into zombies. <laughs> I'm sorry. I had to be done. And welcome back to Video Game Mythos, guys. Boy, what a ride. COVID, and then a break, and now it's back, and ah, it's been hectic. And we apologize for the lapse in content, as our schedules, and likely yours as well, have all been shaken up. And we're all just trying to get by. But isn't that the beauty of video games? They just help us get by. And that is what Video Game Mythos is here today to help you do. To get by. And you... You sexy mofos out there have helped us get by. It means the world to us that despite our lapse in content creation, you are still listening, getting caught up, and re-listening to your favorite video game mythos episodes. It's a testament to the audience we have built, and that it is you that has truly allowed us to expand into it. Thank you so much for the continued growth, and if you love the show, do us a big favor and go leave us a review on Facebook or iTunes or wherever you can. Let us know what you love, and we'll be sure to give you guys some shout-outs on the show. Like K.A. What, J. Davison, LMLRX08, Dungeon Slammer, Showtime DC, Thundermeg, Tim Yoder, B. Shaw Foolery. All of you have left a review, and for that, thank you. We want to see that number grow bigger and bigger, and as we see them, we're going to keep giving you guys some shout-outs. So let's see them. I want to scream your name. I mean, What? But don't stop there. You shouldn't just take Video Game Mythos when it comes to podcasts. Check out the other sweet shows we have on our network. Gurus of Gaming is a video game talk show. D&D Kinda is a customer in D&D campaign featuring Ryan and yours truly. Wasted Local Talent features bands and businesses from the West Virginia area. And finally, the Final Girl Podcast, our newest edition, which is a horror movie analysis and discussion show that I have been known to make an appearance on from time to time. Don't sleep on any of those shows because they are all fantastic, especially D&D Kinda, if I do say so myself. Last, and most certainly least, as I have been ingrained in video game storytelling and stuck at home during COVID, I, much like many other nerds across the country, have started a Twitch channel in which I will play games dedicated to the stories I have covered in video game mythos. I have played Hellblade, I have played Dark Souls, I have played Deep Rock Galactic, and I've played a ton of other stuff. If you feel like popping in and discussing the lore or just chatting with me and having a good time, you can find me on Twitch and Facebook Gaming at Average Idiot 121. That is A V E R I G E Idiot 121. I would love to see you in there, meet some of the fans of the show in an interaction that is about as close to -to face-to-face as I've been to anyone in months. That includes my wife. I'm lonely. So, remember four episodes ago when we covered Left 4 Dead? It's been a long time, but we talked about the subtle story behind the multiplayer. Well, this week, we're going to go backwards a little bit until about a week after the end of the initial Left 4 Dead story and cover the facts and myths surrounding the sophomore entry in the Valve multiplayer shooter series, Left 4 Dead 2. Also, a huge shout out to the community with the assist on these random wikis. A lot of awesome data on the fandom wiki for this one. So, without further ado, let's jump in to Left 4 Dead 2. Fucking love this game. 
It's midday. Hot. High noon in Savannah, Georgia. Sticky and humid like every other day. Nothing worse, am I right? Wrong. All of your friends are dead. Can't get worse, right? Wrong again. All of your friends are dead and chasing you to make you dead too. Oh, and reaching the top of a building, being evacuated by a helicopter while being chased by the dead, only to find out you are seconds late and you just missed being saved by a helicopter. That also sucks pretty hard. And now, our new ragtag group of survivors, Rochelle, Coach, Ellis, and Nick, waste no time in expressing just how much it sucks. And with Ellis usually voicing it in some strange metaphor or a story involving him and his friend Keith. So let's get to know our survivors, and we'll start with the young buck Ellis since we were just talking about him. He was born in 1986. Ellis, or L as they sometimes call him, and I hate that because of Stranger Things, is a journey mechanic by trade. But now he fancies himself a zombie slayer. Growing up in Savannah, he's a goofy, beer-loving country boy with a strange and naive view of most situations. According to Valve, Ellis has a unique mind, quote-unquote, and draws parallels in situations of extreme optimisms, like being excited to go to the concert and the carnival at the same time. He is open, friendly, inclusive, and like most stereotypical young men, he's a risk-taker and considers himself relatively indestructible. Don't let that make you think he's a badass, though. He's a goofy dude who constantly breaks out into weird rants that have nothing to do with his current situation, making up weird stories about his friends, and fantasizing about Zoe. But to be fair, let's be real. <laughs> who doesn't? Hmm. Oh, sorry. Dripped it off. So, uh, Rochelle. Rochelle as of 2020, would be 40 years old and she's from Cleveland, Ohio, but she does not look a day over 29. She is a feisty news reporter who was sent to Savannah on assignment to cover the outbreak, but naturally that didn't work out so great for her and now she's stuck trying to live instead of making a living. But hey, she ended up in a video game, so that's cool. Not a lot is known about Rochelle, other than she is sporting a Depeche Mode t-shirt, meaning that somewhere deep down, she has a love for English synth pop and electronic rock, which, you know, same. <laughs> Her drive to survive, although the news network is dead, is to make it through this outbreak and make a hella badass movie about the outbreak that definitely is not the movie posters that each and every campaign in the Left 4 Dead series is based off of. Right? I mean, right? Playing the big sister of the group, everyone shows Rochelle respect. She is sensible, level-headed, and just generally nice to everyone with her dry sense of humor, which we can expect since she likely picks it up from the British comedies she watches. Who doesn't love Fry and Laurie, honestly? Now, Coach, who goes by no other name, apparently is the eldest and the voice of reason and the authority of the Left 4 Dead 2 team, playing a similar role to Bill in the original Left 4 Dead. He comes across as a warm-hearted father figure with an optimistic attitude that is hard to disagree with. Despite his friendly demeanor, his experience as an actual coach makes him demand things of the other survivors in a relatively positive way, such as loudly encouraging them to get back on their feet when they are severely hurt, encouraging them to continue rather than giving up. 
Coach can be seen as a father figure, if not the official leader of the group because of those aspects. Coach also respects both of his fellow survivors and to a lesser extent, the infected. This is shown if he is critically low on health, as he may say, they beat my ass fair and square. Like the other survivors, he dislikes Sita because of their inability to deal with the infected. And that's shown several times throughout the storyline as during the swamp, he thinks Sita is not doing their quote unquote job, right? If they have to be forced to get help from the swamp people. And during the park, when looking at the where is Sita graffiti, he says, hmm, good question. Where the hell is Sita? Because I'd like to shoot some of their asses. Coach also has an unhealthy obsession with food, which, you know, same. Coach also seems to be some of the brains of the Left 4 Dead 2 survivors, as during the Dark Carnival, he convinces the team that if they use pyrotechnics from the Midnight Riders concert finale, it would get the helicopter pilot's attention. During hard rain, due to the survivors accidentally leaving the gun bag, which had their flares, behind with Virgil, he suggests using the burger tank sign to get his attention. And then there's Nick, the one that most fits in this situation. He's a gambler and a con artist with a shady and even violent past. He seems reluctant to be a part of the group at all and takes the role of the complainer, finding fault in everyone else's plans. The increasingly sorry state of his once fine suit and his teammates' character flaws as he judges them relentlessly. This makes him difficult for the others to get along with at first, but that changes as time goes by as he learns to trust them and proves himself a valuable part of the team suit and a blue shirt he claims is worth $3,000. He has multiple rings on his fingers, one of which bears a symbol belonging to a gang. It can be gathered from his appearance that he's a ladies man, quote unquote, as he has lipstick smudged on his collar as well as a love bite or hickey on his neck. It's also mentioned on multiple occasions that he was previously married, because if Nick hears a witch, he may say, I think I hear my ex-wife. And in hard rain, he may say, last time I saw this many crying women was at my wedding. He appears to have some trouble with the law also, as during the Dead Center campaign, upon finding a Tier 2 gun, Nick may say that he is not legally allowed to own a gun. Given that Nick appears to be an American citizen, and thus covered by the Second Amendment, this likely means he is a convicted felon, who are not legally allowed to own or carry guns. Not that laws matter much in a zombie outbreak. All of these crazy characters, in a fight for their lives, decided to go to the mall where it was said that another evacuation center was still in operation. While leaving the mall, they learned about each other's names, which we just talked about. They fight their way through the rundown streets of Savannah by obtaining the equipment at Whitaker's gun shop and struck a deal with Whitaker to quickly access the mall only to find it abandoned and full of infected. In desperation, they decided to pierce deeper into the building in the hopes that the evacuation center was simply deeper inside. It turned out that the center was decimated and all the CETA agents were either dead or infected. In despair, the group entered the mall's atrium and discovered a local legend named Jimmy Gibbs Jr. stock car. Ellis suddenly came up with the idea to find gas cans to fuel the car's tank, which just so happened to be conveniently scattered around the area. They managed to find sufficient gas and escape from Savannah in the car. The four of them arrived at Rayford and found a raised bridge that they could not pass as it was raised by the original survivors in the first installment of Left 4 Dead. As we mentioned in the previous episode, Bill sacrificed his life to raise the bridge while Lewis was wounded by a witch as the group explored Rayford. 
either Francis or Zoe would meet the survivors and inform them that they could not lower the bridge for the group because the generator that used to lower the bridge was out of fuel and they must tend to one of their own who was wounded. After battling through a wedding and the witch bride, the streets, and the historical sewer, the survivors met up with the other three once again. After the three original survivors agreed to help by defending them from higher ground, the Savannah group was able to fend most of the infected off, find the gas cans, fill the generators up, cross the lower bridge, and drive off while exchanging farewells as they continued to New Orleans. The escaped car worked well until the survivors arrived at Griffin County and discovered a massive pileup of abandoned vehicles, forcing them to disembark from their cars and proceed on foot where they discovered that the people were stuck in their cars when the infected came and killed them. When they went below the overpass, they saw that the searchlights were still up in the distance. The group decided to head for the lights as they believed that they would be fellow survivors holding out at the park. The lights were revealed to be coming from the Whispering Oaks Amusement Park, and the Midnight Riders were going to play there, and the survivors discovered that the park was overrun and full of infected, just like everything else. They fought their way through the infected masses, and as they left the Tunnel of Love, they discovered a helicopter flying overhead, apparently trying to search for survivors. As they fought their way through, the helicopter returned again, and Coach came up with the idea to use the Midnight Riders equipment in the Peach Pit to start a concert to attract the helicopter's attention. This gambit paid off, and the survivors managed to evacuate in a helicopter as the masses of infected swarmed the stadium. But once again, luck was not on their side as the helicopter pilot became infected, prompting Nick to shoot him while the helicopter crashed. The survivors exited the wrecked helicopter to find out they had landed in a bayou and discovered a small village where its inhabitants decided to fend for themselves, but this failed miserably and they were overrun. They also came across an alligator farm and they continued forward, eventually discovering the wreckage of the plane. They were forced to activate the plane's emergency exit, unleashing a horde of infected alerted by the sounds, but managed to fend them off and arrive at another village which appears to be intact. Unfortunately, though, they discovered that this village was also overrun, but its survivors informed any bypasser to head to the plantation house, where they discovered a radio. Upon interacting with the radio, they found another survivor, Virgil, and informed him that they were at the plantation house. Virgil recognized the location and blasted the gate open after the survivors fended off a horde of infected, and they all escaped on his boat before they could be overwhelmed. As the group made their way down to New Orleans, Virgil's boat ran low on gas, and he sent them on a fuel run to replenish the supply. The survivors believed that the task would be easy, but realized that they forgot their gun bag, which also contained a flare to inform Virgil that they had obtained the gas. They discovered that the local gas station ran out of gas and were forced to go to the next gas station two miles away, passing through an abandoned sugar mill infested with witches. The weather also showed that the signs were headed for the worst as a storm squall appeared and hindered the survivor's sight. They managed to make their way back to the nearby burger tank where Coach comes up with the idea to use that burger tank sign as a substitute for their flares. This gambit is a success as Virgil arrives to pick them up before the survivors were overwhelmed. Virgil sends the group to New Orleans and the survivors bid him farewell as he goes to look for more survivors. Coach was immediately reinvigorated as they saw the fighter jets in the sky and he knew the military had not abandoned the city yet, though Nick was skeptical about their presence. 
they determined that the bridge in the distance was the best chance of survival and discovered the corpses of the non-infected people on the way and correctly deduced that the military took over Sita's pitiful attempts to contain the situation by finding themselves in an area being bombed by the military and quickened their pace to the bridge. Nick was wary about the military as they might not have the best intentions at heart, but the others were optimistic and they knew that they would be rescued and interrupted a transmission between the two military personnel, Papa Gator and Rescue 7. The two learned that the survivors encountered the infected and assumed that they were carriers. Papa Gator asked Rescue 7 if they were equipped for the carriers which he affirmed. Papa Gator informed the survivors that they were lucky as they just pulled out of the area and they had 10 minutes to reach the other side of the bridge to their transport. The survivors fought through the infected amassed on the bridge and reached Rescue 7. And as Rescue 7 left, the fighter jets bombed the bridge to prevent the infected from leaving the city, and the pilot took them out to a military cruise ship at sea. And that's the end of the story. It doesn't sound so bad now, does it? Infected and all. It was just a bunch of infected, right? Well, you think that now. But not only did this group and our previous band of survivors have to go up against the hunters, boomers, smokers, tanks, and witches, but this time there was a new slew of mutated infections to barrage our heroes on this journey. Charging into the first spot is the Charger. Sorry, I'm a sucker for a good pun. The Charger is a large infected, close to the tank in height and about half its width. Unlike the tank, the Charger's legs are capable of supporting all of its weight and thus stands mostly upright. His hairless skin is a deep greenish gray in color and he wears bloodstained denim overalls with one broken strap and a green sneaker on his right foot. The Charger's mutations appear similar to the tank's mutation in terms of increased muscle mass, but noticeably asymmetrical. Most notable, the Charger's right arm and shoulder have grown significantly and have increased in thickness, resulting in his right hand becoming a swollen lump with stubby fingers. That causes him to lean to the right while moving. His left arm, inversely, has atrophied to the point of being useless, possibly from his body breaking it down to add bulk to his right arm, as it hangs limply on the charger's side, flapping around at every movement. His legs are less visibly affected by mutation, with only his left leg gaining any sort of extra bulk to the point of ripping off his overalls, while his right leg's proportions remain normal. The legs mutations are possibly to balance the charger, equalizing the weight distribution throughout the body, enabling him to move quite fast as he's charging. Due to the charger's preferred method of attack, he has sustained multiple injuries, especially on his right arm. Prolonged times of bashing and slamming into walls has made the flesh of the charger's right arm thick with calluses, scabs, and scars. Most likely a result of his constant charging, the right half of the charger's face is visibly damaged. His cranium has a large dent, he lacks any teeth, and his nose is completely removed with blood running from it. Now, clothed in a cold gold lame bra with dark stains, torn dark indigo capris, and perhaps humorously as well as disturbingly a pink thong, we also have, sounds sexy right, the spitter. Now, you say that, but let's talk about her. She wears a number of rings on her finger, including a wedding ring, hinting that she was possibly married before becoming infected. Her hair is chestnut brown 
and kept in low pigtails, and depending on her model in the CGI movie or the game, may have green or brown eyes. It can also be noted that the spitter's skin is a luminous green when alive, yet when killed, her skin becomes a normal pink color. This could be due to all the acid being spontaneously released from her body upon death. Moreover, her acid also glows in the dark. Through mutation of the infection, the spitter has developed the ability to project an extremely corrosive ball of acid from her mouth in a mortar-like fashion. This projectile will collide with a ceiling or wall and drop down to the nearest solid, walkable surface and upon contact will spread into a large puddle of acid that increases damage over time. It's possible from the way the acid is spat that the spitter encases it in a thin sort of membrane or bolus likely in her body or throat or mouth, which is either dissolved by the acid or breaks it on impact. It is evident that the infection has caused the spitter to suffer from mega esophagus or her stomach has eroded all of her organs found in her neck. This could be the cause of her hacking and gurgling as acid can be found in her lungs. From how heavily the spitter secretes the acid, it seems that she cannot produce it will and must excrete it from her body in such a fashion as salivating it to prevent herself from filling up or rupturing with acid, similar to the boomer. Now, the jockey. The jockey has the ability to jump onto the survivors and cling to their head and upper back, and from there he can steer survivors while clawing to their face. Valve did state that the jockey was made to work specifically in tandem with the spitter by steering the survivors into her acid. However, they are much more notorious for steering survivors into an early tank fight or right into a witch if they're nearby. The infection has caused the jockey to develop a large amount of muscle mass in his upper back and neck, making him hop around in a spider monkey-like motion. His fingers and toes have increased in strength, adding to his baboon-like profile. His lips and his skin surrounding them have deteriorated away, giving him a more skeletal look in the mouth area. This could possibly be due to him chewing and biting away at his lips because of mania because he cackles like a madman, or possibly even clawing at his mouth due to the same reason. He wears a tattered white t-shirt and blue boxers and has a gibbering vocalization and cackles hysterically while riding a survivor. According to the Valve commentary, the mutations are the cause of the jockey's mania, causing the jockey to laugh. When playing as the jockey, his hands are curved downwards, similar to a praying mantis. The arms, however, stick out straight and sport a coat that appears to be blood. The hands are always twitching and shaking, the right one twitching noticeably more than the left, and he doesn't stop laughing until he's dead. When there's a jockey on the back of the survivor, the survivor can only move to resist the jockey's influence over them. Though this has been a slight resistance, it will merely slow down the survivor to a slow walk. Also, against what is commonly believed, moving in the same direction as the jockey will not make it easier to steer. Now, team that merry band of baddies with the OG crew and you have a recipe for deadly disaster. Oh yeah, I said it. Now. As the games unfolded in time, the Left 4 Dead 1 maps and characters were released as DLC allow intermingling of the characters in each of the campaigns, and more variation in play choices and possibly even allow, hear me out here, allowing Ellis to hook up with Zoe. Who knows? It's a possibility. I'm not jealous at all. Now, for some more interesting tidbits about the game. As you probably know, the cover of Left 4 Dead 2 has a hand 
with the pinky and the ring finger curled, leaving the middle finger and the index finger showing it like it's counting the number two, and the thumb necrotically rotted off the hand. But it wasn't always like that. The original design had the thumb, but also the pinky and the ring finger rotted off as well. But the ESRB rating system forced them to change the other two, but okayed the thumb. When asked why the thumb was allowed, they refused to comment. Interestingly enough though, the UK version of the game has the hand showing the front side of the hand versus the back that the US shows. The German version, however, has no necrotic fingers, just a poorly photoshopped lack of thumb. Pretty interesting. Now, here's a super bizarre theory out there for all of you Will Ferrell fans. It is speculated that Rochelle, as we mentioned she is a news producer, worked for the same company that Ron Burgundy does. The developers have put in some cheeky nods to the film, Anchorman. Some of Rochelle's dialogue matches Ron Burgundy's line from the movie, most likely because she also works for the same news station. When Ron is injured, he yells, Knights of Columbus, this hurts. Son of a bee sting, this hurts. And by the beard of Zeus, this hurts. Rochelle shares those lines, also shouting them out when she's injured in the game. Definitely, definitely likely know each other. Just saying. That's a sweet movie reference, but here's another. According to VGFAX user Kid Divine Gone, DLC based on the horror movie, The Cabin in the Woods was once in development. However, when the movie studio MGM filed for bankruptcy in 2010, the content was delayed and ultimately scrapped. Now, I don't know about you guys, I'm a big Cabin in the Woods fan, and whenever I found out about this, I had to take five minutes and cry and collect myself so I could keep going with this episode. So if you're out there and just hearing that for the first time, I know, I feel your pain. I would have, it's just like built for that kind of content. But that's not the only other connection to media. Check out all these references that are sprawled across the walls throughout the game. There's a Dead Rising reference where it says, Otis, out of film, no helicopters, zombies move too fast, not gonna make it, signed Frank West. There's a Plants vs. Zombies reference where it says, need an M60? Come see me, signed Crazy Dave. 28 Days Later, where it says, repent, the end is extremely fucking nigh. Shaun of the Dead reference, my personal favorite, Ed is the king of the zombies. 1978 Dawn of the Dead film, Roger went to the mall, Francine. Dawn of the Dead 2004 reference, went to save my dog, if not back in 15 minutes, drop everything and come save me, signed Nicole. An Adventure Brothers reference, hey mall, meet me in town, we'll have some fun, signed Brock. Now, staying within the Valveverse, in the Dark Carnival campaign, you can get a garden gnome named Gnome Chomsky as a prize for scoring over 750 points in the shooting gallery minigame. You must hold onto the gnome until the end of the level to get an achievement. This is a reference to Half-Life 2 Episode 2, in which you must launch a gnome into space in order to obtain an achievement. And last, but certainly not least, staying on the Valve train, if you go to any jukebox in the game and hit it, you have a random chance of getting one of five songs. And one of these songs is still alive from Portal. Ironic, eh? Still alive, like every single survivor of the eight. Oh, that's right, Bill. We know you're out there. You didn't die. 
You just moved to Dead by Daylight to repair generators, you bastard. Thanks for listening to Video Game Mythos. Stay alive, my friends.